Hello, you're very welcome to Long Reads, a Jacobin podcast where we look in depth at political topics and thinkers. My name's Daniel Finn. I'm the features editor here at Jacobin, and I'll be presenting the show. Belgium may be one of the smallest countries in Western Europe, but its capital plays host to the EU as well as NATO. In 1955, the US-led military alliance produced a series of short movies that profiled its member states. In the 20th century, and within the Atlantic community, the frontiers of Belgium are clearly defined. South of the Netherlands and north of France, neighboring on Luxembourg and Germany, and across the channel from Britain. A strategical crossroads frequently violated through the centuries by rival armies. In self-protection, the people sought refuge and security in tightly unified city-states. The Baroque and gilt Gothic magnificence of the Brussels Grand Place reflects the prosperity these independent cities achieved. Rue de Chêne, Reichstrat, Rue Royale, or Koninklijkestrat, according to whether your native Belgian language is Flemish or French. Officially, it's four and a half million of one and three and a half million of the other. But in fact, a majority of the people speak the two languages. Within a 200 mile radius of the Belgian capital live 72 million Europeans. British, French, Dutch, Luxembourgers and Germans, as well as the Belgians themselves. If the Atlantic Alliance can succeed in breaking down national barriers to encourage a wider flow of goods and ideas, the Belgians see their capital and their country as certain to gain increasing importance as an international center within the Atlantic community. Almost 70 years later, Brussels is still the headquarters of the Atlantic Alliance and the main hub of European integration but the harmonious picture of intercommunal relations conjured up by NATO's infomercial has given way to talk of outright separation. Our guest today for a conversation about class, region and empire in modern Belgium is Anton Jaeger. Anton is a Belgian historian of political thought who's written for a number of publications, including Jacobin and New Left Review. How did Belgium come to be one of the first industrial states in Western Europe? And what was the political significance of that transformation? Yes, uh, a very big historiographical question, uh, to which there are several answers, and I'm going to try to give the most plausible one, I think. So what makes the industrialization or the early industrialization of Belgium particularly puzzling is that it militates uh, quite aggressively against this Weberian idea that uh, capitalism only develops in Protestant countries or that you need a certain cultural base of Protestantism for capitalism to actually take off. While what you see in the case of Belgium, which was still a predominantly Catholic country in the early 19th century, it actually became the most powerful industrial state on the continent after Britain, of course, and continued to dominate for quite a, a large amount of time and other Protestant neighboring states, such as, for example, the Netherlands, actually took much longer until the end of the 19th century to develop a proper industrial base. So it's a very, very fascinating question also on on that range. I think the best way to see the early industrialization of Belgium is as a product, really, of the French revolutionary occupation. 
So the French invade Belgium in the 1790s. There's an occupation which also calls forth indigenous uprising. And it's mainly because Belgium is at the strategic geographic point in Europe with the port of Antwerp, but also Ghent and armies passing through that they quickly realized that it would be a good idea to develop Belgian industry as a way of both staving off a British threat, but also making sure that you can use industry to make your way into the rest of the continent. So in the 1790s, under the French occupation, you have this deliberate policy of protecting Belgian industry from foreign competition and nurturing domestic industry. Um, then, of course, when Napoleon falls and you have the restoration, this actually continues. So when the Dutch get Belgium back in 1815, they keep a lot of these protectionist measures, which actually protects Belgian industry from competitors. And then when Belgium becomes independent in the 1830s, there is a deliberate policy of economic liberalism, which builds on the gains of that previous period. So it is that political legacy which really proves quite crucial for driving Belgian industrialization in the 19th century. The other thing you have to combine it with is just industrial espionage, which is kind of a contingent but interesting factor insofar as Belgium was one of the first places where actually British entrepreneurs or British capitalists arrived in the early 19th century, such as Cockerill, for example, and found circumstances in Liège, so the south of Belgium, the French-speaking part, which were quite similar to them to the north of England, so Manchester and Liverpool and that industrial uh, basin. And since Liège and large parts of Bologna were very close to a river, it was obvious that developing industry there was a good idea. And what you have in Flanders in centers such as Ghent is that Leven Bowens, who was a Flemish entrepreneur, who actually was able to subvert some of the limits on industrial engineering exports in the UK. So in the early 19th century, it was actually forbidden to export certain industrial machines from the UK into Europe because they knew this constituted a competitive advantage. But through the manipulation of several local English brokers, he was actually able to get a mule jenny, with which he spin cotton, from Manchester, I think, into Ghent. And this proved to be a crucial technological innovation that also drove Belgian industrial revolution. So that is the second contingent factor, which is industrial espionage. Then there is a more, I'd say, strictly social factor, which is the presence of a quite large and concentrated labor force that is being thrown out of agriculture. So precisely because Belgian agriculture, and mainly Flemish agriculture, enters in such a severe crisis in the 1830s and 1840s, there is a massive labor reserve which Belgian industry can tap out of. And since the demographics of the transition are so unequal, and so many people are entering the labor force at the same time, wages are also very low. And since wages remain very low for most of the 19th century, that actually aids Belgian industrialization insofar as it keeps a competitive edge on Belgian industry, makes it an export power in the long 19th century, which means that Belgium basically exports from Russia to even India to a large part of the imperial world at the time. And it's only really in the early 20th century that competitors such as Germany and the US begin to achieve a much, much bigger dominance on the world market. So that, in a very schematic way, would be the story of Belgian industrialization in the 19th century and why it happened so early.
What was the social content of the divide between Flanders and Wallonia in the 19th and 20th centuries, and how did it shift over time? There's a very simple way of explaining the contrast, which is industrial versus agricultural. Um, And in the 19th century, several socialists already compared Flanders, for example, to a Belgian island, so an internal regional island, which was, of course, not an island, but which in socioeconomic terms had a very similar makeup. So Flanders, uh, partly because of geography, but also partly because of history, was predominantly agricultural. And for the most part of the 19th century, except for some urban centers, it remained so. Um, It was a reserve valve from which proletarians could migrate to the industrial centers in the south. Um, And the 19th century, the difference is just that Wallonia is industrial, has massive factories, is basically Belgian-European Manchester, while Flanders is an agricultural island with a language that the elite doesn't respect and doesn't speak, and which is basically a safety valve for labor to migrate into the south. Now, that contrast persists into the 20th century. Um, In the 1920s and 1930s, it still holds, even if Wallonian industry is not that competitive anymore. But it's really in the post-war period, and mainly the age of American reconstruction, so far as American capital flows into Belgium in the 40s and 50s, that that balance completely begins to shift. So Wallonia uh, deindustrializes, sorry, quite aggressively in the 1950s, 1960s already, while Flanders actually begins to industrialize in its own term. But industrializes in a very different way from the legacy industry of coal and carbon we know from Wallonia in the 19th century, which was mainly mining, sort of heavy steel, and which is very much focused on uh, services and packaging or repackaging of products, either for an American market or for a bigger European market. So by the close of the 20th century, the balance has completely shifted and Flanders is predominantly industrial and quite productive. So the majority of money is actually made in Flanders, while Bologna completely loses the economic race in the 1960s, 1970s, and basically becomes an equivalent of Detroit or Manchester, but with a more generous welfare state. And this, of course, means that the power balance within Belgium has also completely shifted insofar as most of the elite are now concentrated in the north, because that's where economic power lies, while the legacy industry, which propped up this French-speaking elite in the south, has completely disappeared and taken away their power base. Charleroi in the region of Wallonia. In 2011, Germany's DW News carried an alternative tourist report on a former industrial boomtown. The city has never recovered from the decline of its steel industry. The old steel mills are close to the centre of town. A quarter of the population are unemployed. Charleroi is anything but a tourist attraction. But performance artist Nicolas Buissard offers a very unusual kind of guided tour. There's not much beauty here, so Nicolas makes a virtue of necessity. For example, he takes visitors to what he considers the most depressing street in the world. Here you get an especially good impression of the real Charleroi. The street runs right through the industrial area. I come here often. 
It's like an open-air museum of industry. Another attraction is the Ghost Metro, complete with rails and stations. All that's lacking are trains. It's been that way for 30 years. At some point, the city ran out of money during construction. How did the Belgian labour movement and its main political parties approach the regional divides? And how did those parties fit into the wider Belgian party system? Yes, yes, very good question and also a question which requires some historicizing. So since industry in the 19th century was so heavily concentrated in the south, except for those urban centres in Flanders, the beginnings of Belgian socialism, except for the capital of Brussels, which is a new case, unique case, is quite heavily Francophone and Wallonian. This doesn't mean that first Belgian socialists don't realize that there is a language question and that, for example, social exploitation in Flanders always goes hand in hand with linguistic exploitation and that the fight for language rights in Flanders is also a social struggle. But they still see these industrial regions as the core region for their agitation and they don't really see the need for going beyond that particular sector. So it takes a while until the late 19th century when it, there's a stronger, you could say, linguistic presence within the Belgian uh, Workers' Party, as it was called at the time, which actually starts to agitate and make arguments for language rights for the Flemish majority at the time. Um, while there are also certain voices within that Belgian Workers' Party who still say that a unitary Belgian state based on one language, namely French, is basically what the movement should be striving for, even though they realize that that means alienating a large part of that agricultural voting bloc in the north. Um, That divide persists with the Flemish nationalists within the socialist movement as a minority, It's only when the socialists realize that the Flemish nationalists become an electoral force to be reckoned with in the 1920s and 1930s that they really start to adjust to the situation and make overtures to it. What happens in the 1950s and 1960s, because Flemish nationalism is so tainted by its collaboration with Nazism in the 40s, you basically have the development of a severe split at the heart of the Belgian workers' movement. There is a part of the Belgian workers' movement that becomes openly Flemish nationalist and that wants to combine uh, Flemish independence with what they call a social Flemish republic. And then there is a part of the Belgian workers' movement that becomes openly Wallonianists, if you want to call it that way, which says that Wallonia should actually secede from this predominantly agricultural and electionary Flanders because if you want to build socialism in Belgium, it's never going to be possible with that region attached to it. Flemish nationalists from all over Belgium poured into Brussels to demand more share in the government, education and administration. The city centre was prepared for a rough time as the French-speaking Walloons were out to give as good as they got. The five million Flemings are about five-eighths of Belgium's population but protest that the country is dominated by the Walloons. There's been bad blood between the sections for more than a century so it wasn't surprising that the Flemish demonstration turned into a big-scale riot. In 1962, Pathé News reported on a demonstration in Brussels with an air of bewilderment. 
This was a day when Belgium didn't live up to its new dignity as headquarters of the common market. But of course, this long-standing bitterness between Flemings and Walloons is a domestic matter. We hope Belgium will sort it out. This culminates in this moment in the late 60s and 1970s as Belgium becomes a properly federal state in which you have two parliaments and each parliament has its own rights, that the previously unitary parties, so parties in which both Flemish speakers and French speakers were actually part of the same parties, now start to divide into separate parties. So you have the genesis of a liberal Flemish party and then a French speaking uh, liberal party. Then you have the genesis of uh, Flemish Christian Democrats and French speaking Christian Democrats. And at the same time, you also have the division of the Socialist Party into a Flemish wing and into a French speaking wing. So this officializes internal divide, which was always there, but which was never expressed on the level of party politics in such an explicit way. At the same time, since the Belgian labor movement doesn't only have those parties to rely on, but also still has unions, the unions don't actually undergo that process of internal division. So they have Wallonian and they have Flemish branches, but they are still unitary or more unitary organizations, which means that the Belgian working class as a whole doesn't find itself represented in a cohesive way, but it still has these institutional structures, which are quite Belgian. What impact did the process of colonization and decolonization in the Congo have on domestic Belgian politics? This is a very tough question, precisely because unlike France or even Britain, and you could even say Germany, Belgium is quite unique for not letting any of its former imperial subjects actually into the country. So the Congolese diaspora in Belgium is extremely small, comparatively very small to other countries. And the number of Congolese communities you have either in the capital of Brussels or other cities are mainly made up of Congolese elites who mostly have sympathies which are not particularly progressive or which are more amenable to the interests of the Belgian state. So this makes it seem as if looking at Belgium today, there wasn't really an impact and Belgium just dropped this colony in 1960 and forgot about it and they've been living in a different world ever since, which that imperial legacy no longer holds. In fact, that is only the surface of the story insofar as independence of Congo in 1960, which was very sudden, did mean that this old Belgian Francophone elite, which really had two bases of its power, or three bases, I should say, which is the industrial capital in the south, so in Bologna, the connection to the royal household, mainly based in Brussels, and then this uh, colonial goods extraction system with Congo, which meant that they were able to finance industrialization as well. Five years before Congolese independence, NATO's Belgian travelogue cheerfully discussed the economic fruits of colonial rule. Shipments from the Belgian Congo are now 20 times greater than before the war. The Congo mines make Belgium the leading copper producer of Europe, while its farms provide hardwoods, vegetable oils and fibers. Still more valuable in recent years, has been the discovery of uranium. 
Once that Congolese factor falls away, that means a massive decrease, both financially and politically, in the power of that old Belgian elite. So it basically means that the new Flemish elite, which is rising in the north, which doesn't really have a connection to the Congo, which was never so heavily invested in colonial goods, but is oriented towards the U.S. above all, now sees a chance to actually push that Belgian elite off the state. And I think there's an argument to say that the independence of the Congo in 1960 basically allows for the federalization of Belgium in the late 1960s. At the same time, the disappearance of this Belgian elite doesn't mean that they are not able to reproduce their power in certain ways. And of course, once you have the end of formal imperialism, many of these Belgian capitalists try to keep their stakes in these Congolese companies. Um, it's a striking fact, for example, that when in the 1950s, the European Economic Community, beginnings of the European Union were actually formed, Congo was actually a part territorially of the European bloc. So if you look at maps from the 1950s, on which the European community appears, the Congolese and the Algerian territories of France actually appear on those maps as well. So there was a real desire to keep Congo in as long as possible. And it was only when it was clear that the Congolese independent movement was too strong and the Americans were insisting on the independence that suddenly there was this move towards Congolese liberation, which was, as we know, quite badly executed and which was done without this internal cadre that could manage the transition. So the disappearance of that old Belgian elite completes the post-industrial transition in Wallonia and makes Flanders into the economic powerhouse of the country, while at the same time it maintains this more informal multinational form of imperialism in which Belgian elites can still continue to export all these goods while at the same time not maintaining their political power. In September 2020, there was a gruesome reminder of the Belgian state's historic role in African affairs. The South African broadcaster SABC reported on a court case involving the late Patrice Lumumba. The Belgian court ordered the return of the tooth of the DRC's first prime minister, Patrice Lumumba, to his family in the DRC. The tooth is the only remaining body part of Patrice Lumumba. The decision to return his remains has been well received by many Congolese in the DRC. Mr. Lumumba's daughter has described it as a great victory for the dignity of black people. The Congolese independence hero was assassinated in 1961 by rebels from Katanga province. His body is reported to have been dismembered and dissolved in acid. A Belgian soldier is thought to have pulled his tooth from his corpse and taken it to Belgium. Patrice Lumumba became the DRC's prime minister in 1960 at the age of 34. He was a strong advocate for an end to colonial rule. The court's decision will end years of lobbying by activists and his family members for the return of his remains. Before Lumumba's death, a Belgian colonial minister had called for his definitive elimination as a matter of policy. In spite of this, the Belgian government would only accept moral responsibility for what happened to Lumumba when it apologised to the Congolese people in 2002. How did the strike movement of 1960-61 develop and did it leave behind an enduring political legacy in Belgium? Yes, it did. And it's a paradoxical strike movement insofar as it is taking place at the height 
of the so-called Belgian Trente Glorieuse or the post-war years of growth in which you have rising incomes, uh, better social services, and more social rights for the working class. And for a lot of people, certainly in the European labor movement, for example, André Gordes, who is then a correspondent for Les Temps Modernes and the Sartre, actually reports on the strike wave. And he uses it as a way to debunk this idea of the integration thesis or the idea that basically all the European working classes have given up their revolutionary fervor and become part of the middle class and don't want to actually engage in any militant or subversive strike action anymore. So there's this idea of the acquiescence or the quiescence of European labor movements, which is completely negated by the strike wave. Strikers parading through the streets of the capital. This British news report linked the strike wave to events in the Congo. Public services disrupted and in places paralyzed. It was a case of work at a standstill, workers on the march. Though efforts to bring about a general strike had not as yet succeeded, the walkout by so many thousands of workers had produced crisis on a national scale. Police and troops anticipated serious trouble, so much so that some Belgian forces serving with NATO were ordered home to Belgium. The strike and the demonstration began as a protest against the government's austerity program. This itself was due to the damage done to Belgian economy by events in the Congo. Soon, however, the strike appeared to be an all-out challenge to the government by the socialist-controlled unions. The Catholic unions refused to support the strikers, whose main plan now was to bring down the government if they could. What a contrast the scene presented so soon after the popular rejoicing over the king's wedding. Um, one way of understanding it is that the strike wave is a response to two processes. The first is that after the war, um, you have the creation of social security and all kinds of social rights on the instigation of communist militants who actually almost invade the parliament at the time. But at the same time in the 1950s, that old Belgian elite is still able to keep its grip on power. So that means loads of promises of revolution were actually in the air in the 1940s, but they were never fulfilled. And in the 1950s, you're looking at a country that was promised big change, both on a linguistic, a federal, and a social level, but which hasn't quite achieved it. And the 1960-1961 strike wave is then best conceived as a way to restart that revolutionary engine from the 1940s, but in different circumstances. And the other component to it is indeed the realization that the Christian Democrats in the North have succeeded in diffusing a certain socialist thread by basically transferring all these Flemish proletarians into the countrysides and doing a version of what you could call Belgian suburbanization. So they turn all these Flemish workers into middle-class homeowners, and this puts a check on revolutionary activity in Belgian politics as a whole. So the strike wave can then also be seen as this exclusively Wallonian event, which is a way to say we want to secede from this conservative northern region, which is actually incapacitating any prospects for socialism in Belgium as such. And, of course, even if it fails, the Gaston Askins government at the time does make an enormous amount of social concessions. And, for example, the entrenching of union rights and the increase of all kinds of social services is also the result of that strike wave. Um, so even if it didn't culminate in a revolutionary situation, it did have a massive impact on the social history of Belgium as a whole. 
You've touched on this question already, but perhaps we can go into it in more particular detail. How did the reforms that created a system of regional devolution come about and what political consequences have since flowed from those reforms? This is again a question that needs to be treated in phases because Belgian state law and certainly Belgian region state law is an insanely complex question on which people will write PhDs and spend entire academic careers just interpreting and making sense of it in the first place. But they basically come in phases insofar as there's always a package of state reforms which are conceded on behalf of a certain Francophone elite to a Flemish voting bloc that has been asking them. You can basically phase them into three or four phases. There's the moment in the late 70s when Belgium becomes a properly federal state and you now suddenly have... uh, several communities, so you have Flemish community, you have Franco-Roman community, and then you also get the creation of uh, mainly cultural rights for Flemings, which can now determine their own cultural policy on a level. Um, so that is the first step of the federalization process. Then there's a step in the late 70s, which is the so-called Egmont Pact, in which even more uh, language rights are granted to Flemings. And then you have a moment in the early 90s in which federalization takes another jump insofar as Flanders now gets its own parliament, Wallonia gets its own parliament, even Brussels becomes its own region with its own parliament. And you have this absurd proliferation of all kinds of ministries and cabinets across the country. They have an interesting effect insofar as they create different political cultures and arenas. So Flemish politics was a thing before 1970 insofar as Belgian politicians had to get votes in Flanders, but they didn't really see themselves as playing in this arena of Flemish uh, parliaments. So that means that the political cultures begin to diverge and segment in a political way. So while Belgium still read broadly the same newspapers or watched the same TV in the 1960s and 1950s, that completely changes in the 1970s, 1980s, and you could basically talk of two political cultures. Um, But since most of the first rights that are actually granted to Flemings are cultural rights, uh, the Belgian workers' movement doesn't suffer from that type of fragmentation insofar as most of the social security system and most of the social provision that is in place is still instituted on a federal level. So that also explains why so many Belgian unions are quite hesitant about plans for Flemish or Wallonian independence, because so much of their institutional power relies on a body of law and a body of social rights, which was instituted on the Belgian level. At the same time in the 1990s, when regionalization takes another qualitative jump, you finally have the creation of what you could call a distinctly Flemish state, which is able to raise its own taxes, institute its own form of social provisions, which creates competition between different levels. And that means you have this constant bargaining process on different levels where politicians who both have a foot in the Belgian federal parliament, but also in the Flemish parliament, constantly have to make deals with all kinds of players to make sure that all the parties are catered for. And that means, for example, once you do an energy deal, you have to make sure that the energy deal, which is done in the federal parliament, 
can't be against the interest of Walloon politicians, while, for example, Flemish politicians want their own specific energy deal. And there's this constant, constant bargaining process, which has a centrifugal effect on the Belgian state as such, because once you have some competencies on the Flemish level, you might simply say, well, why don't we just transfer all of these competencies to the Flemish level, because it's tending towards this. And this puts the Belgian workers movement in a difficult position, because institutionally, the Belgian state is decomposing and fewer and fewer actual delegatory rights are situated at that level, while at the same time, so much of its institutional power, for example, social security, is still situated at that level. And this is also why that people say if Belgium were ever to truly split, which they have been saying for several decades now and it never happens, but in the coming five years, people still pre-say that sort of scenario, it will happen once Social Security is actually split completely. And that means that Flanders will raise its own taxes, Wallonia will raise its own taxes, and then it will pay for childcare, medical, and school services with its own pot of money. Then regionalization will be complete and Belgium will fall apart into two different countries. Belgium was one of the founding members of the European Economic Community back in the 1950s and Brussels as a term, as a word, has long been a shorthand for the EU's political and administrative machinery in other countries. What impact has the Belgian role in European integration had on its domestic politics? It's a interesting question insofar as the presence of the EU, not only within Belgium, but also within Brussels, is slightly strange in that they completely determine how the city is managed and they completely determine the country's politics on so many levels. But visually, the EU is not present at all. So if you come to Brussels, the actual European quarter is quite segmented and secluded from the rest of the country. And since the dominant language of that community is English or Yurish, as they say, they don't actually interact with the rest of the city in a very comprehensive way. They have their own restaurants, they have their own schools, they have their own social circles. And Brussels being a rather tribal city already actually doesn't have that strong relationship with the EU. That doesn't mean they're a sort of parasitic or alien body within the city as a whole, but the EU and Brussels are so connected in the international mind, or at least in international debates, everyone can just call the EU by the metonym of Brussels. But once you actually live in Brussels, it feels extremely strange to equate the two and you say, well, the EU is just this institution that has landed down here because they had to find this compromise between the French and the Germans, and they obviously couldn't put center of the institutions anywhere else. Is that all you want to say? One minister, I'm afraid that is the penalty we have to pay for trying to pretend that we're Europeans. Believe me, I fully understand your hostility to Europe. I'm not like you, Humphrey. I'm pro-Europe. I'm just anti-Brussels. <laughs> the demonology of Brussels was already a staple of British political discourse during the country's first decade of membership. In this clip from the television series Yes, Minister, first broadcast in 1981, a fictional civil servant and politician give free rein to their favourite national stereotypes. The trouble with Brussels is not internationalism, it's too much bureaucracy. But the bureaucracy is a consequence of the internationalism. 
Why else would there be an English commissioner with a French director general immediately below him and an Italian chef de division reporting to the Frenchman and so on down the line? Oh, I agree. It's like the Tower of Babel. I agree. No, it's even worse. It's like the United Nations. I agree. Uh, then but perhaps, like... perhaps, if I may interject, you are in fact in agreement. No, no we're not. <laughs> Brussels is a shambles. You know what they say about the average common market official? Mm. He has the organising ability of the Italians, the flexibility of the Germans and the modesty of the French. <laughs> And that's topped up by the imagination of the Belgians, the generosity of the Dutch, and the intelligence of the Irish. <laughs> <laughs> it's all a great big gravy train. What do you they mean? live on champagne and caviar, chauffeur-driven Mercedes, private aeroplanes. Every one of those officials has got his snout in the trough. Most of them have got their two front trotters in as well. Oh, Minister, <laughs> I beg to differ. Brussels is full of... Busy, hard-working public servants who have to endure a lot of exhausting travel and tedious entertainment. Oh, terribly tedious. Working their way through all that smoked salmon, forcing back all that champagne. <laughs> well, in any case, Minister, I think you're blaming the wrong people. Now, at the same time, the reason that Belgium was always a driving force behind European integration is because they realised in the 50s and 60s that the great age of legacy industry was over, coal was on its way out, you could not maintain this 19th century capitalism in a 20th century world. And since Belgium was a very small economy, extremely susceptible to the shocks of the bigger economies that engulf it, they knew that they had to hitch their wagon to European integration immediately, partly because they needed oil, uh, from across the U U.S. and they needed good rates at which they could buy this oil, but also because they needed a market for the specialized products that they were going to produce. And thirdly, and this was very important for the Christian Democrats and the conservatives, you needed to protect a domestic farming class from international competition. And the EU, except for a steel cartel, was always this machine that would protect European farmers from a hostile world market. So these three factors explain why Belgium embraced European integration so enthusiastically and why after hitching their wagon to it, they also got into the driver's seat because they realized the better that Europe does or the better that EU does, uh, the better that we will do. So unlike some of the other great capitalist nations of the 19th century, for example, Britain, there is very little Eurosceptic sentiment, both in the elite and in the population at large. And almost in a cognitive sense, it seems absolutely impossible for Belgians to ever contemplate leaving the system. Um, even the Belgian Communist Party or the BTB doesn't actually quite talk about its Euroscepticism uh, in those terms. Um, and weirdly enough, the EU has often functioned as this transcendent horizon for Belgian politics insofar as the decomposition or the degradation, I'd say, of the Belgian federal state and its splitting into two separate federal entities. Certainly on the left has created this idea that, well, in the end, we'll all be integrated into Europe anyway, or we don't have to be Belgians in the long term, we'll all be Europeans. So why not just make the jump towards a supranational state and upwardly absorb ourselves into the EU machine. Now, this lasted in the 2000s and even in the 2010s, but certainly after the Euro crisis and after the successive problems that the EU experienced in the 2010s, whether economic or geopolitical, some of this enthusiasm has actually cooled in Belgian politics as well. So there's no longer the idea that the 
Belgium can just transform itself into this region of the EU and then it'll be done with. Now there's a difficult midpoint between, well, the EU will never become a super state. It will never allow itself to be integrated in that way. And the realization that Belgium itself is no longer viable as an institutional settlement. So many Belgian politicians and even Belgian citizens find themselves in this situation where they can't imagine an alternative to the EU, but they also can't imagine an alternative to the Belgian federal state anymore. And I think this deadlock will probably last for a long time, but it will have to be resolved in one way or another. What political forces have recently been pressing for greater autonomy or even outright separation in Flanders? And is there likely to be a full break at some point under conceivable circumstances? Yes, two extremely contentious questions. Um, So I'll break them down in two parts, obviously, the Flemish part and the Wallonian part. And then there is the possible prognosis or the possible almost astrological question whether there'll be a breakup of Belgium in the conceivable future. On the Flemish side, there are two parties which have been pushing and agitating for Flemish independence, mainly in the last 20 years, but I would say in total going back in the last 50 years. The biggest party still, which is currently still in the Flemish, but not in the federal government, is the NVA or the NVA, the New Flemish Alliance which was basically formed in the early 2000s after the breakup of the Volksunie, which was, I wouldn't say a more centrist, but at least a more left-leaning Flemish nationalist movement that didn't survive the 1990s because of internal divisions. Now, the NVA was originally founded by Bach de Wever, also its current leader, as a way to reboot that old nationalist outfit of the Volksunie with a more centrist stance. In the 2000s, it was a small party electorally. It didn't get that many votes. But since it actually had a big influx of more right-wing Flemish nationalists in the 2000s, and since you had the explosion of a new communitarian crisis or a new regional crisis after 2008, it swelled its ranks enormously and then actually almost got into government in 2011 and then finally got into the federal government in 2014. The Flemish national anthem, and soon perhaps the anthem of an independent Flanders. AFP reported on the party's big breakthrough in 2011 and the regional divisions it reflected. They didn't win an outright majority, but some 30% of the electorate voted, in effect, for the dissolution of Belgium as we know it. The country must be reformed. Finances must be redressed. That is why we Flemish must be united to succeed in changing the country. Belgium is set for big changes. The country is split between Flemish and French speakers, a gulf that now looks increasingly state-sanctioned. In Flanders, many are delighted. Things need to change. The Flemish voters have said so, loud and clear. Things need to change. So today's Belgium, the Belgium of our fathers, that's finished. A lot of Belgians no longer want so much of the money going to Wallonia or for people to stay unemployed from generation to generation. The separatists aren't interested in running a united Belgium and they've offered the Prime Minister's job to their francophone opponents. But that's far from enough to calm the fears of many French speakers here. 
I'm very pessimistic. I'm scared that the Francophones won't be able to negotiate very well because there's much fewer of us and we'll have less money. So they're going to buy out Brussels and once they have Brussels, they'll drop us. So the NVA is definitely the most powerful Flemish nationalist or nationalist force in Belgian politics as a whole. And interestingly enough, it's also the most wealthy party in Western Europe as a whole. They've bought enormous amounts of real estate in the last 10 years, partly because party financing in Belgium is still so generous. And they've managed to shrewdly maneuver themselves into a position where they have enormous amounts of capital to finance their campaigns. Unlike the other parties, however, they're not really a mass party in any way. So they consistently score quite high tallies in elections, but they don't have a very deep and broad member base, and they don't have that strong ties to civil society organizations anymore. So there used to be this Flemish national civil society, which was represented by the so-called Flemish Volksbeweging or Flemish uh, People's Movement, but they've cut ties with that civil society in the last 10 years, and now have become an almost exclusively digital parties. This has gone hand in hand actually with their declining electoral fortunes, not in the sense that they've disappeared from the scene, but that they originally arose in the 2010s as an alternative to the other big nationalist force, which is the Flams Blanc or the Flemish interest. Now, the Flemish interest used to be called the Flemish Bloc or the Flams Bloc until 2003, 2004, I think, when they had to change their name after a lawsuit in which they were accused of racism and they had to completely transform the organization to survive politically. Now, they are a much older organization, um, I'd say a more classically far-right European party in the style of the Front National in France or even, for example, the uh, BNP in Britain, which was born in the late 1970s as an alternative to the Volksunie I mentioned before, where basically former fascists who were also Flemish nationalists started a party in the 1970s and 1980s, which was exclusively focused on Flemish independence, which, which in the 1990s, certainly after the signing of the Maastricht Treaty, became this very strong anti-immigrant voice. So they were always on the far right, but it's only in the 1990s that they discovered that xenophobia or anti-immigrant sentiment is this electoral winning strategy. And they've continued to play on it ever since. They were cornered or at least marginalized by the NVA in the 2010s, where the NVA even presented itself as a party that made Flemish nationalism hygienic again. In the sense that they said, our big achievement is that we pushed the Vlaams Belang out of Flemish politics and allowed people to become nationalists without being fascists. But after the NVA's passage through government in the late 2010s, in which it was clear they didn't have the personnel and they weren't actually able to deliver on any of their promises in terms of independence, the Vlaams Belang has again surged in popularity. So now they're scoring even better than the NVA in the latest polls. But since there is a so-called cordon sanitaire around them, where no party will enter into a coalition with that party, they haven't been in government ever since, and they don't have that much policy experience. But since they still have a big popular base, which is regionally rooted, which is actually 
sturdier and more robust than that of the NBA. And they have a younger, I'd say, more like Salone or compatible leader. And they spend enormous amounts of their party financing on digital advertising. They're a party that continues to grow. In 2018, the party leader Tom van Grieken held his first meeting with King Philippe. He presented it as a landmark in the normalization of the radical right. I was pleased with the invitation and showed respect to our 800,000 voters. And I'm not going to make something which is logical and democratic. I'm not going to say it's unnatural. This is natural. What happened the past 40 years was not democratic. So the NVA is not disappeared from the scene, but they're feeling the breath of the far right, mainly on their right flank. And it's not very clear that when the next election cycle comes up in 2024, there won't be a coalition between the NVA and the Vlaams Belang, because once they have over 50% together, they'll feel far more confident declaring independence. The Workers' Party of Belgium has attracted a lot of interests outside Belgium in recent years as one of the more successful parties of the radical left in Western Europe today. How would you define its political character and how has it approached the regional divide in Belgian politics? Historically, the PTB is an interesting party insofar as it doesn't come out of late 19th century mass politics or it doesn't have very deep roots in Belgian party politics as such. It's very much a product of the post-68 moment in the 1970s when, as a Maoist party, they tried to form this alternative to the established social democratic parties, which has basically reconciled themselves with the variant of Belgian corporatism. So they started as a quite sectarian outfit in the 1970s and 1980s, Then in the 1990s and the 2000s, mainly as a response to the rise of the Vlaams Bloc, they went on a more, I'd say, multicultural or openly uh, pro-immigration stance where they tried to form this left-wing alternative to the rising racism in Flanders at the time. This led to some rather unfortunate election pacts, for example, with Islamic parties in the early 2000s, which made them lose several elections, except for some local regional gains. It's only after 2008 and the start of the financial crisis, which completely nuked parts of the Belgian financial system, which escalated communitarian tensions, that the PTB has been able to recompose itself as a very strong political force and actually one of the most serious left-wing parties in Western Europe at the time. So they've moved away from that sectarian past in a sense that they have become a broad membership party. They're one of the few parties that has growing membership. And they're also the last unitary party insofar as they are one Belgian institution. They are bilingual, or at least they try to be a bilingual as best as they can. And the members of parliament of the BTB are unique for the fact that they deliver both speeches in Dutch and in French as they speak in parliament, which means that they have to show they're very, very serious about keeping together the party as a Belgian institution rather than a BTB, which is Flemish, and a BTB, which is Wallonian at the same time. Um, I think the biggest 
cause of their success in the last decade is that the fracturing of these previous pillars, as they're called, or these civil society engagements between parties and unions has created space for unions to move away from their previous father parties. So, for example, the Christian Democratic Union in Flanders has completely cut ties with the Christian Democratic Party. So the union and the party have decoupled. This also holds for the Socialist Union and the Socialist Party, which have alienated from each other at an alarming rate. But this also means that the PTB can now operate as a political representative for an economic interest group, such as a union, because precisely that party doesn't stand in the way anymore. And since unions in Belgium are still infrastructurally quite strong, a union membership hit over 55 or 56% in the last year, it's edging towards 60%. This means unions still have a lot of power within the economy and they have a capacity to post political demands. And that also means that unions are quite grateful for the fact that the PTB has been able to translate some of their demands into politics. And at the same time, the PTB is also unique among left populists insofar as it does rely on this densely organized civil society, both in unions and in its party cadre, which is quite different from, for example, the digital parties of Corbyn or the one-man party that Mélenchon has built, which finds it far, far more difficult to actually maintain ties with left-wing civil society. So I'd say the two success factors of the PTB are, one, their capacity to remain a unitary Belgian party and resist the increasing regionalization of Belgian politics, while, secondly, it has been able to capitalize on the surviving union strength in the Belgian economy and is trying to politicize the civil society from the left. I think you can add to that the fact that many PTB members come from a party which still has very good educational practices, which has a sense of internal discipline and a research division, which is a very high quality. And that means that they haven't fallen prey to this lazy PR or consultancy yeah. politics, which is so prevalent across European politics today. Many thanks to Anton Jaeger for that account of Belgian history. You can read more of his articles about modern politics on the Jacobin website, 